Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 17 in the Message Translation. And then I took a hard look at what's smart and what's stupid. What's left to do after you've been king? That's a hard act to follow. You just do what you can, and that's it. But I did see that it's better to be smart than stupid, just as light is better than darkness. Even so, though, the smart ones see where they're going, and the stupid ones grope in the dark. They're all the same in the end. One fate for all, and that's it. When I realized that my fate's the same as the fool's, I had to ask myself, so why bother being wise? It's all smoke, nothing but smoke. The smart and the stupid both disappear out of sight. In a day or two, they're both forgotten. Yes, both the smart and the stupid die, and that's it. I hate life. As far as I can see, what's happened on earth is a bad business. It's smoke and spitting in the wind. The word of the Lord. <laughs> I, I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> I think we should just close in prayer and get out of here then. So encouraging. All right, my name is Jim Cole, and the New Testament reading found in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made the foolish? made foolish the wisdom of the world, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to those who believe. Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Anna. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 13, 50 through, 53 through 56. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brother's name James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord. Would you stay standing just for a moment? Father in heaven. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts not only be acceptable in your sight, but Lord, move in our lives through your word to bring us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We're continuing in part three today in the series in Ecclesiastes and the Old Testament reading was, in fact, the portion of Scripture that Pastor Glenn asked me to take on. Clearly one of the more difficult passages, so I thought I would use Eugene Peterson's brilliance in the message and the gritty language to just say 
right out there, smart or stupid, you know, it's all the same in the end, and, and kind of leave that hanging out there for a moment as we look. How can we find joy when, when we hear the rantings of a desperately despondent King Solomon? How can we look at that and find anything of God's inspiration? Well, what I'd like to consider today is that, and what I'm titling our, our, our message today, is what knowledge and wisdom can't understand. I'd like to reread it in the New International Version, which is just a little less uh, uh, vernacular. And so Solomon says, Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successors do? than what has already been done. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fools walk in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And so what knowledge and wisdom can't understand. The books of the Bible don't come to us in a vacuum. You can't just look at this portion of Scripture, odd as it is, and, and stand it by itself because it has both a context and a backstory. The context is one we're somewhat familiar with, Pastor Glenn has shared. That is Solomon, considered the wisest man on earth at his time, a king who had everything, King David's son, the heir to the throne. Solomon, with all of the riches, with all of the wisdom, with all that he could possibly have, is now reflecting on his life and the things that were seemingly so important are no longer that big a deal. In fact, they've proven to be futile, proven to be meaningless, proven to be, as one translation says, vanity, vanity. And so the backstory is that, the context is that, but it doesn't stand by itself. The scripture that we just read seems to say every time I look for something you know, you do your best, and it doesn't matter in the end, because the guy who does his best and the guy who barely does anything, they're both just going to die. I'm reminded of one of my favorite movies that is, a, I think, a must for anybody in helping professions. What about Bob? Anybody seen that? I love how existential um, his, uh, doc, the, Dr. Leo's son, Sigmund, gets with Bob when they're sitting in the bed, and he says... We're going to die. We're all going to die. And just that, that, that feeling of, oh, is that all there is? Well, we can't just take that by itself, first of all. There is a, a more, there's something behind that story, okay? Now, we've joked, and Pastor Glenn shared this a couple weeks ago, and I've, I've heard this, this joke many times in theology classes where Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, also penned predominantly by Solomon, 
The message of Proverbs is if you live by these principles, life will work out really well for you. Whereas the message of the book of Ecclesiastes seems to be, I tried it, but it didn't work. Now, we joke at that, and it's kind of funny, but I would suggest to you that Solomon's approach in Ecclesiastes is not just a tongue-in-cheek, glib little remark because things got tough. I suggest that behind it, there is a despondency. There is somebody saying, I did it by the book. I did everything I was supposed to do, and it still doesn't seem to mean anything. I'm not surprised to find that the book of Ecclesiastes is a favorite, if you will, for people who have really struggled and have even lost their faith. The interesting thing about the book of Ecclesiastes to me is that A, it's found in the scriptures, and B, what it does is it gives voice to those who can't figure it out. It gives voice to those who have lost the assurance that maybe they once had. I know people, and I I suspect many of you do as well. I know people, some who even attend here, who personally have really struggled, and, and I know a few people that even consider themselves Christian agnostics. Still Christian in the sense that they come and they they hope and they wish and they lean toward, but wondering if there's even really a God. And yet embarrassed or ashamed to really bring that out. That's not the kind of thing you bring out in a meal group. I wonder if there's really a God when people are talking about the sermon, you know? And yet, for those who struggle in that deep kind of doubt, isn't it amazing that the words of Scripture itself give a voice to that? You've got someone saying, I don't know if it even matters at all. I hate life. Have any of you ever said that in total frustration? or heard someone say that in total despair and frustration. And here we have it in quotes in the Bible. Martha, who read the uh, Old Testament reading for us, and I told her it'd be like, a little bit like being a stand-up comic uh, this morning, said that, that her daughter overheard her. She was reading it out loud beforehand, and she, her daughter heard her say, I hate life. Mom, what? I'm just reading the Word of God. <laughs> so what we have here... Is, is a passage of scripture, and it's not hard to understand. You know, when, when Glenn asked me to, to preach on this and continue the series, it, it doesn't take a lot of hermeneutical expertise or exegesis. It's Solomon looking around and saying, it doesn't seem if you do things right or you do things wrong, if you're smart, if you're stupid, if you're wise or if you're a fool, everybody dies in the end and it's just like spitting in the wind. That seems to be what it's saying. The big question is, why is it there? And how does it speak to us today? Well, again, the Word of God is not in a vacuum. And we, from the perspective of the New Testament, we look back from the vantage point of knowing that the cross is there, and we look back to this book of Ecclesiastes. And I should say, parenthetically, that even at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the last verse, chapter 12, verse 14, Solomon acknowledges God's sovereignty over everything, even after he said all that he has said. But when we go to the New Testament and we look through the lens of the cross, we get a very different perspective. And that leads us to our New Testament reading. And I'd like to just look at two verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and reread them. Such a powerful description of the cross and its seeming foolishness. In chapter 1, verses 
20 and 21. It says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Now, I've, I've given a lot of my life's uh, effort, and, and of course, Glenn has as well, and is right in the middle of it uh, in his doctoral studies in the UK, to this issue, the idea of gaining knowledge and, and wisdom and, and those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, they don't answer life's toughest questions. They really don't. Where is the scholar? Where is the wise man? Where is the philosopher? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who would believe. So what Paul does is, we use the word juxtaposition. You know, you've got Solomon and his, his complaints and his despair. And over here you've got Paul. And Paul seems to be saying, the smartest guys still can't figure it out. But the foolish, the most foolish thing you can imagine is the way that you're going to find the answers to life. You see, power and authority, or excuse me, knowledge is, is at the heart of most of what we think of a power and authority. Didn't you learn that in school? Knowledge is power. Because if you know something that somebody else doesn't know, it gives you an edge over them. I've even heard in, in leadership conferences that you can pay people not by currency, but by information. Because when people know information that other people don't, they feel empowered. They feel that they've got an edge on it, right? And that can even be a bit manipulative too. But the idea that, that the most powerful thing you can do is know stuff other people don't know, be smarter, you know, the smartest guy in the room, and hear Jesus, God in the flesh, chooses the most foolish thing to lay his life down that will ultimately be that which will destroy all human wisdom. And, and it's such a strange paradox. You know, the, the foolishness of the cross is not in knowledge, but in the most vulnerable act of laying your life down for somebody else. And beyond that, the, ultimately the foolishness of the atonement is the answer to the question, is life worth anything at all? Because the answer to it is, in Christ, yes. Yes, it is. As, as meaningless as it seems, God is in the business of restoring and making all things right. And he does that through the cross. So we look back from Solomon's words forward to the cross, and from the cross we look back to these words, and so the answer to it is leaning into Jesus and his death, his burial, and his resurrection, which answers the question what knowledge and wisdom cannot understand. You see, it's those seemingly God-absent moments in our life that we have the opportunity to meet God in the most profound way. I love that song that Abby and the team led at the uh, beginning of the service, where there is no way he makes a way, where no one else can see us, he finds us. That's such a profound truth. It's just such an amazing truth. And think about the flow of the way, the way that we have constructed our services week after week. And, and we do this intentionally. Uh, of course, you know that it's been influenced a lot by the, the history of the, the church for the last 
1,800, 1,900 years, and, and uh, Pastor Glenn, of course, last year being ordained as an Anglican priest, bringing that, that part of the tradition into it and, and all of that. But when you think about how we do this, all of it has to do with the foolishness of the cross. That's why we have a cross and a table that are central. You see, when you hear the word preached, what do we do after that? We have a time of public confession. We have a time of saying, I have not measured up. I have sinned. First John tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James tells us if we confess our sins one to another, we can pray for one another and we'll be healed. There, there's this sense of public confession that makes it a clean slate. And not only is it just public confession, but then the, the, the minister, the pastor who's presiding, has the privilege of announcing the grace of God to the people and telling them your sins are forgiven in the name of Jesus. And then we turn, we say the peace of the Lord be with you and the response is and also with you. And we say turn and pass the peace to one another. The purpose of that is not a short meet and greet. You know, hey, how you doing? You know, a little fist bump. And, and it's profoundly spiritual. It's saying, I know things haven't been right. And you may be plagued with doubt. And you may be feeling distanced from God. But we have together as a people confessed our doubts and our unbelief and our failures and our shortcomings. And he has assured us of our forgiveness because of the cross. And now we have heard the, the, the assurance of that. And we are turning to one another before we go to the table and saying, I want that same peace on your life as well as mine. And we've seen some profound things here. Just a short time ago when, when Linda and I were uh, serving up here in front, I remember seeing a young lady who I think was by herself just as she took, as the bread was placed in her hand and she dipped it in the cup, just tears streaming down her cheeks as she, as she just came to the table. I don't know what was going on. I don't know what doubt and fear and unbelief and despondency and, and struggles she's having. But I know that in the process of saying, Jesus, cleanse me, of hearing Jesus has cleansed you, of hearing someone say, Jesus is peace beyond you, and then coming and hearing the body of Christ broken for you, his blood shed for you, suddenly there was just this awareness of his presence that answered the question that the wisest person among us that the smartest guy in the room can't answer. I want to end my talk today with a story, and it's a very significant story to me. My background, very briefly, and many of you have heard the story, but my background at least, not this particular story. After a number of years of pastoring, we transitioned out of that, that pastorate in 99, and I began working with a mission organization, AFMEN, Africa Ministries Network, training and equipping pastors in Africa, traveling frequently over all throughout Africa. And in 2000, the year 2000, I had the privilege of going the first time to this massive Congolese refugee camp in Central Africa, Nyaragusu Refugee Camp. It's run by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, the UNHCR. And that first time was just kind of a game changer for me, a life changer. But 
I went back the next year, I went back the next year, and one thing led to the other, and uh, Linda ended up coming numerous times with me for 11 years in a row. Every summer, I was in that refugee camp. Linda had the opportunity of starting a, a women's vocational school for the late women refugees. Uh, we just, the pictures that are up there just show a, just a brief little snippet of the thousands of refugee pastors. We had the privilege of seeing, we would have 1,500 to 2,000 people often training and equipping. We saw over 1,000 churches planted in three different refugee camps during that period of time. Now, these are people, you remember the Rwanda genocide in 1994? After 800,000 people were slaughtered in the space of 100 days, when the outside forces came in and, and the militias were pushed away, they didn't just put down their arms and go back to regular life. Many of those militias were pushed into the eastern Congo where they continued their savagery. And from 1996 into the present, over two and a half million Congolese have been killed. And yet you don't hear much about it. These are the people that we were ministering to, the families, the survivors in this horrific uh, genocide. And, and I, there's just so many stories. When I, when I look at the picture of them, I, I know some of them, and I, they're my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I, I get teary-eyed because I, I love these people so much. And my time there has permanently and forever altered and changed my worldview and my life. They have really dark, deep red soil, kind of like Georgia soil. And long after the, you finally get the stain of the soil off your fingertips and off your clothes, the stain of that, that soil is forever on my heart. Well, one year, not that many years ago, I was preaching. I was teaching, you know, I, I kind of, in Africa, even if you're teaching a lesson, you're still preaching because that's kind of their only default, you know, style. And how many of you have ever had the opportunity to talk through an interpreter who's speaking to a group of people in another language other than yours? Quite a few of you. You know how you, you can't pay attention to them or it throws you completely off, right? You know, you have to just focus on what you're going to say and ignore them. But what you do hear are proper names and proper nouns, right? So, hi, my name is Stephen. I'm coming from Colorado. Yeah, Stephen, Colorado right? You, you get used to hearing the proper names. Well, I was making a point. I was trying to be, uh, I was trying to really do the, uh, the right thing. I was teaching them on, in spite of all you've gone through, you need to reach out to your brothers. You need to forgive them. You need to be reconciling because our ministry in Christ is reconciliation and all those kinds of things. And I was mentioning Burundi, the little landlocked country of Burundi, which sits right next to the Eastern Congo and just about 50 miles north of where this refugee camp was located. That's where a lot of the, of the folks who had killed the Eastern Congolese, a lot of them had come from Burundi and those tribal groups in Burundi. And they hated the Burundians. And so I noticed that I wasn't hearing, when I would say Burundi, I was not hearing my interpreter say Burundi. And this happened a number of times. And, and uh, finally, as I got near the end of the, my session, my dear friend, Pastor Dafa, who's a Tanzanian pastor that traveled with me every time into the refugee camp. He's multilingual, just a wonderful guy. And often, usually he's interpreting for me, but he was uh, doing something else. He came in and I could tell he was bothered by something. And so after the meeting was over, he comes up to me, he says, brother, something is wrong. And I said, what, what is going on? He said, not only would they not say Burundi, they would say some other people, but they would not even say you should forgive them. 
he said, they would say things like, you should think of some other people. And so I just became incensed with, you know, righteous indignation. Boy, I'm going to give these guys a piece of my mind. I'm going to share the gospel with them. I've got wisdom. I've got knowledge. I'm smart, doggone it, and people like me, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them something. So I said, we need to have the committee. Now, we had an actual committee of these, the, some of the key leaders in the refugee camp, about eight or nine uh, men, and we actually had a meal. We would provide every day the food for all these refugees for, the, uh, for them to have an additional special meal. And so we're around this table in this huge mud hut, and with my interpreter, Pastor Dafa, I am looking them in the eye, and I'm telling them about forgiveness, and I'm telling them about uh, reconciliation and, and all of these things. And when I get done, I kind of wait and it's like, well, what do you have to say for yourselves, you know? And one by one, these men, through hollow eyes, look at me. And of course, Dafa is in translating for me what they're saying. They begin to tell me the most horrific, unimaginable stories of what they had seen and, partic- and, and had happened to their families, to their children, to their wives, to their church members. Stories I could and would never tell in this kind of a public venue. Stories that would make you sick. I, I was, but it wasn't just one man. It was story after story after story after story after story. And it got back around. And I was devastated. And I looked at them and I said, I thought, I don't have any wisdom. I mean, life is meaningless. I mean, what, you know, I, I felt like Solomon. What, what is the point to any of it? And at the same time, the Lord Jesus loves those people as much as he loves anybody. And, and I, I did sense the Lord just speaking to me and through me. And I said, I don't have any response at all. But can I ask you a favor? Can we put together somehow a communion, a Eucharist service this afternoon? And then they got perked up and smiled. And one guy said, yes, I'll go to the UN infirmary and I'll ask for the discarded little plastic cups that the medicine goes in. And we can use those for the cups. And another one went to the UN uh, food uh, uh, area and he got jars of... I've still not known what this is. It's called Chemicola, C-H-E-M-I, like chemical. Chemicola, black, concentrate black currant juice. And I'm really not sure what it is still to this day. And of course, water from within the refugee camp, which you add to the juice, which made me think in terms of communicable and waterborne diseases. But then, because I, you know, I always had my own water bottle that I brought from the outside, you know, with me. And then I remember thinking, you know, if there's ever a time to take a chance, it's when breaking bread with my brothers inside this camp. Though they had then these big plastic bowls, brightly colored plastic or buckets that they would pour the water in. And then after you would drink, they would throw the little, little medicine cup into the water and they would swish it around for the next guy. I did make sure, because they only had 100 cups and 1,500 people. I made sure I was part of the first 100 to take it, I confess. And so it was, it, was, it was a long, drawn-out, wonderful service where they seemed to get in touch with the fact that when I can't understand how this all works, I, when I can't seem to reconcile the, 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 the disparity between what I'm experiencing and, and what's supposed to work out in life, I know I can lean into the cross, the foolishness of the cross, and somehow 
find peace and joy in God. So we had a wonderful time, and, and we were done. Fast forward a year later, next summer, I'm there. We're having the opening festivities, and they, they're, they're big on kind of pomp and ceremony in their own way. And there were, again, probably 1,500 or more there. And they got up, and they wanted to introduce me. They were so excited. I didn't know what it was. And they had about 50 African men stand up over in this corner. And they looked a little bit nervous. And they said, after last year, we got permission from the United Nations to travel over to the Burundian refugee camp and go to those brothers and ask for their forgiveness and invite them with you in permission to come to our meeting this year. And these are our pastors from Burundi who are also refugees. And we just all started weeping. I met them, I hugged them, they hugged each other. They passed the peace of the Lord in such an amazing way. And I looked and I said, we got to have communion. And they smiled and said, we'll go get the medicine cups, you know. And they got the black currant juice and, and we had... I tell you, it was unbelievable as people were taking the, the elements to one another and, and passing the peace of the Lord to each other. And what it showed me was that what Solomon was missing in part is answered by St. Paul. When Solomon's saying, what does it matter? Being wise, being a fool, you all die in the end. And St. Paul's saying, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest man because in the cross, everyone gets restored to their creator. Everyone can have the peace of God that passes, surpasses all understanding. Everyone can have the joy of God, even in the midst of their doubts and their insecurities and their fears and their addictions and all those things, their hatred, their anger. So then the next year, and Linda was with me that year, they surprised us a little bit, and they made, me a, they made something for me, a gift. You know, Pastor Glenn uh, wears a stole when he uh, pronounces absolution, and then he goes to the table. A, stole, a clergy stole, a pastoral stole, is traditionally is symbolic of both ordination and of being under authority and being a servant. Well, they made this stole for me, and it's not the most beautiful. It's not silk but it's priceless to me because this was made actually in the refugee sewing school that Linda helped start by refugee women and it was given by the refugee pastors uh, as just a, a symbol of God's forgiveness and God's rec reconciliation. And so what we're going to do in a moment is we're going to transition from this sermon to confession. We're not going to use the same confession that we have on most Sundays. We're going to use another one that I found in the Book of Common Prayer. And it's also a, a call and response where I'll say some of the words and the bold words you'll respond afterwards. But what I want to happen today is us to be able to take our doubts. Some of you have more doubts than others. Some of you have deep, deep burdens some of you have brokenness that we can't imagine. But would you take that brokenness? Would you take those doubts? Would you take that anger? Would you take that hurt and that pain? And through the words of the confession, would you give it back to the Lord? And would you hear the words of absolution that your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name? And when I say the peace of the Lord be with you and you respond, 
and I encourage you to pass the peace to one another, realize that you're going to someone who might really be struggling this morning. And you are the vehicle, the channel through which the love and the grace and the joy of Jesus Christ might come to them. When you reach out and you grab their hand, don't just meet and greet. Find somebody you don't know and tell them the peace of the Lord be with you. Finding joy is the title of this series. I would suggest that in life's deepest moments, in life's greatest doubts, when we go to the foolishness of the cross, when we lean in to the mystery that is worship, that is receiving God's grace even at the table, we will find joy that we could not find in any other way. And so, would you look at these words? Would you say them out loud? And then I, I will say the first part. You will say the bold part. And let's come to the Lord in an attitude of confession. Lord God, our maker and redeemer, this is your world and we are your people. We have willfully misused your gifts of creation. Lord, be merciful. We have seen the ill treatment of others and have not gone to their aid. Lord, be merciful. We have condoned evil and dishonesty and failed to strive for justice. Lord, be merciful. We have heard the good news of Christ, but failed, have failed to share it with others. Lord, be merciful. We have not loved you with our whole heart, nor our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, be merciful. Would you stand? Upon our confession of sin, I, as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God upon all of you. And I announce to you the good news that your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The peace of the Lord be with you. Would you turn, as Pastor Evan comes to take us to the table, would you genuinely give and spread the peace of the Lord to others in this room?